You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll go back to a conversation with a photojournalist about her project that documented the experiences of vehicle dwellers while she was living in a vehicle herself. He had dismantled the doors and, you know, he was going to paint it. But because it looked like such form of disrepair, they just thought it just didn't work. And actually, it was on Christmas Day when they took it. And it was pretty sad. You know, he came back and there was no van. I think like a vehicle is a temporary form of shelter, you know, so that they don't have to be living in tents or, you know, on the street. But they definitely need, you know, a better option of housing. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. For many people in the region, home is a vehicle. Last year, NBC Bay Area estimated some 10,000 people were living in their cars around the Bay Area. At last count in 2019, there were more than 1,700 vehicle dwellers in San Francisco alone. The Civic team is continuing to work on a plan for the future, so you'll be hearing a few more conversations from our archives in the coming days. Today, we're revisiting an interview with photojournalist Jessica Prado. This is from last summer when the San Francisco Public Press, our parent organization, had just published a series called Driving Home, Surviving the Housing Crisis. In photo essays and stories, she documents life on four wheels in Berkeley and San Francisco. The project, in partnership with Catchlight, captures the experiences of those who call their RVs and cars home, which Jessica does too. She still documents the experiences of unhoused folks in the Bay Area. She's got at least one forthcoming project and has recently been on the scene of an encampment in Berkeley where Governor Gavin Newsom made a surprise visit after residents had been asked to leave. Find her on Twitter at Prado underscore reports and find Driving Home and Jessica's other coverage at sfpublicpress.org. Here's what she had to say back in July 2020 when the series Driving Home was first published. I want to give you a chance to tell the stories of some of the individuals whose experiences anchor your series. But before we do that, I'm hoping you could give a general sense of the rhythm of living in a vehicle, since you're part of one of the communities that you covered, Friends on Wheels, so you have firsthand knowledge. There's this sense when you read these stories of a sort of endless task. If you live in a vehicle, you have to keep moving, keep moving, avoid enforcement. Has that been your experience? Yeah, you're always on the go, you know, especially at the beginning when you're first like acquiring this vehicle, like a lot of people don't even know where to park. So, you know, you're constantly moving around, you know, trying to find water, electricity, you know, just the basics. So, yeah, you're always on the go. How long have you lived in your vehicle and and how does that compare to some of the other people you spoke with? Uh, I've been living in my vehicle for about three years now. I guess, like, the way that it compares is just, like, you know, also the type of vehicle. Like, living in an RV is definitely different than living in a van or in a car. You know, it's a different lifestyle just because you have more space. In this situation, like, a lot of people are just pushed into this situation. Like, it's not like they're making that choice. And this is their only last valuable asset that they have, you know, to kind of have some kind of shelter, right? And for me, it was the same way, you know. <laughs> I lost my housing after my first semester of school, and the first kind of shelter that I had, it was just my vehicle. I had a, a Chevy Aveo a little car, you know, a sedan, and that was hard, you know. I had all my things in a U-Haul truck and just sleeping in the car for a while until I was just trying to think, just figure things out. But yeah, I would say that, you know, a lot of people are just kind of like not choosing to be here. And maybe that's the most difficult part about it, you know, trying to adapt to a lifestyle that you didn't choose. 
Uh, so you have an RV now? Mm-hmm. I have an RV now. Yeah, I had to kind of move. Uh, I had to try to step up my situation because you know it was difficult just having, you know, all things in my U-Haul and trying to go to school during the day and then coming back and not knowing if my things are going to be there. You know, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and can you say a little bit more about what you mean by some the people don't choose this; they're forced into this situation. There's a couple of different examples in your stories of how mm-hmm. people have transitioned to actually different kinds of vehicular living during the course of your reporting with them. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess one one person that comes to mind that didn't choose this situation will be uh, Greg. You know, like he kind of just ended up buying the RB as a way to remain remains still connected, you know, still kind of have that same lifestyle that he had left behind in his housing, you know. But yeah, then then after having the RB for a couple of years, you know, then he had to leave the private property where he was at. He had to face all the regulations as everyone else. He just thought that to be harder. The RBs really stick out, you know, on the street to remain incognito. Like people are going to know that you live there. And some people, that's the most difficult part, you know, like just trying to remain incognito in the place where they live so that they're not harassed. And like no matter what kind of vehicle you're living in, like that's... That's one of the number one goals that you're trying to achieve, you know? You're just trying not to get noticed. What, what does that do to the rest of your life, this constant being on the move and constantly having to try and stay out of the way and out of sight? I mean, how do you how do you live your life while you're busy with that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's difficult. Like, I feel like a lot of people, that's why they don't find any kind of stability to get a job or, you know, or remain in school or things like that. Because if you're always moving around, there's just no stability there's no, you know, foundation for that person to grow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's the hardest part, you know, being on the move, not being able to feel like you belong anywhere. I know this is different for every individual person, so maybe you could mm-hmm. give a few different examples. But how yeah. do people meet their basic needs? Where do they find food? Where do they find water? A place to relieve themselves? Somewhere to put their trash? A place to park? I would say like people that have like uh, maybe recreational vehicles, sometimes they might have a second vehicle, right? So maybe that, that second vehicle really helps them to, you know, run the chores around, you know, go get your food, go get your water, throw your trash. You know, you have a second pair of wheels to go around. But a lot of people that are not only able to afford the vehicle that they live in, then you have to walk around to find all these things. And I think that's that's even harder, you know, because then you really are searching on the ground to see like if you can find a spigot, an open trash can and... And that's just more time-consuming because maybe in the area where you park, you're not going to be able to find anything. It definitely is hard to find resources, and it really helps people to have an extra pair of wheels, even if it's just a bike too. Because, I mean, the water trips just take a lot of time just to go back and forth all the time, and that's something that you will at least need every two days. Where are people going to get this water? A lot of people just go outside the businesses. You know, they'll find a water spigot. Everybody has a water spigot that they have found. (laughs) Yeah, and then some of the spigots actually also give you hot water, so then you're able to use that water to shower as well. So. And, and what about food? Uh, for food, for food is actually being pretty generous these times. I mean, just since COVID nineteen started, there's been a lot of volunteers coming out to the streets just to pass out food, and I I just seen the whole uh, a big difference in that. Like I feel we have food every single week, and that's I feel like a help that you know should have been brought to the streets a long time ago actually. You know, but I mean it's nice to see it that it's happening now. And, what else has changed about pandemic. your situation with COVID-19? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people are coming out and volunteering for food, but you still have other basic needs like hygiene and uh, being able to get water. 
So basically, since COVID-19 started, it's just been difficult also to stay clean. You know, all the gyms are closed and a lot of people that depended on them just to, you know, shower regularly. Now it's just, you know, you have to figure it out. <laughs> and, you know, it's not easy. It's not like you can just shower anywhere. There's there's a limited uh, <laughs> limited amount of, like, public shower programs, you know. I mean, mm. the hours are a little long, but that doesn't mean that everyone can make it. Especially if a lot of people don't have, you know, a method of transportation and they're always walking, you know, to all these places, to all these service providers. And that's one thing that we don't think about, you know, like, yeah, we have these services, but they're all scattered throughout town. Like, what makes you think that a person can actually even hit all of them, you know, and actually be able to get the things that they need? I think like one of the things that would really help out is to have mobile services, you know, like meet where the people are at. I mean, one point that I've heard raised is that specifically in coronavirus times, a service that's not very accessible for people without a fixed address is coronavirus testing. Has that come up in your conversations with people who are living in their vehicles? Yeah, I'm not sure. maybe that has been the case in San Francisco, but here in, in the East Bay, we do have a nonprofit. It's called Lifelong Medical, and they've actually been really good at uh, coming out to all the different camps in Berkeley and making sure that everybody's being tested. And, you know, if anybody's feeling sick, that, you know, they'll have a test for that person right away that day. And mm-hmm. I actually have that the contact person of, uh, of, of this team. So, you know, whenever if anybody's feeling sick, I'm able to just get in touch with him and he'll come right away and, and check on someone. So in that part, we've been actually lucky, you know, to actually have uh, have a medical team that's coming individually to all the camps. Uh, I think that's something that every city should be doing. An unhoused person is not going to be going out to get these tests because, you know, there's other things to worry about, you know. You, you need you need food and water to get by that day, and sometimes that's a prior, priority over, you know, getting tested or getting right. in line to go get tested. Yeah. Right. Survival comes first. So, but yeah, no, right now we've been lucky to have that team, and, and actually, uh, you know, they've been good at it because we we had a couple of people be, uh, get sick at some of the camps, so it's, it's been good that they're being able to uh, test regularly. Mm-hmm. And did they get sick with COVID-19 specifically, or do you not know? Uh, no, they didn't get sick, but they have quarantined a couple of people uh, uh-huh. already because, yeah, it has been the case that some people have been really sick and, you know, just as a precaution measure, you know, they yeah. they, they quarantined the volunteers and the team. This morning, I actually woke up to the Berkeley police, <laughs> you know, oh. it was, yeah, I know that was, that was fun. You know, that happens once in a while, uh, you know, having to wake up to like city services. So you wake up to the city of Berkeley or, you know, Berkeley police. And some of the things that has been happening is just because, you know, sanitation has been difficult to keep up on the streets right now, you know. So they, they actually been starting to uh, have garbage services come every week. So that's something new that has happened after COVID. And it's interesting because, you know, we needed garbage pickup services for the longest on the streets, you know. I mean, how come is it only now that, you know, they're deciding that, oh, yeah, we got to do this. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's good that we're doing it. But, yes, we're, we finally have a garbage pickup services and a portable potty, you know, services ah. that we always needed. <laughs> mm-hmm. While the pandemic has made some things difficult, you know, it had it has also brought some of the services that, you know, people long needed here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about enforcement. During the course of your reporting, a lot changed for the Berkeley community that you were reporting and part of. Friends on Wheels, if I understand correctly, was staying in the Berkeley Marina for a while, and then that started to fall apart. Can you tell the story of how Berkeley's policies toward vehicle dwellers changed over the course of your reporting and how the community responded? Um, so I began this reporting in September 2019, so, you know, about a couple of months ago. 
And when they, when they had started this, basically the city council had on the table the legislation about the 2 in the morning to 5 in the morning um, ban, right? No overnight parking during those hours. So and up until then still... it had been allowed and they were considering a ban. Yeah, they were considering the ban still. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was still kind of on the table. Yeah, and then after that in February they finally did um, begin to, they were going to begin to enforce it after the safe parking program was in place. Um, which is basically the thing that would activate the the ordinance for people to be you know to begin to be moved, uh, but but the thing is that you know the safe parking program has been put into a hold since COVID nineteen started. Like a lot of the administration for this just kind of just was put on pause. <laughs> and you know, can you explain safe parking for somebody who isn't familiar? Yeah, uh, so a safe parking lot is basically just a lot where a lot of people um, that are vehicle or house can be just so they're safe and in these lots you can get water electricity you know shower um, like twice a week depending on the program right like i know san francisco's program only allows them to shower like three times a week wow uh yeah i know you 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 should be able to shower every day you know why not but uh i think they only bring their mobile showers three times a week so that's why you know they only have limited amount basically this this parking lot is just a place where people can you know just be safe in the meantime, that they sign up for long-term housing. And what's the capacity of these safe parking programs? Because I know both Berkeley and San Francisco technically have them, but it doesn't sound like they're able to serve everybody. Yeah, they're actually pretty small. I mean, they're trying to just, you know, call it a pilot program. Both cities, that's what they're trying to do, you know, test it out. And um, San Francisco's program is like, uh, is capped out at 30 vehicles, and Berkeley's is 25 so, yeah. And how many vehicle dwellers are there in both cities? Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> so San Francisco <laughs> has has over 700 people, you know, 700 vehicles. And that's vehicles, not, you know, people. There's going to be more people. Berkeley has like around 156 RVs just alone. And then a bunch of cars and vans too. <laughs> so, yeah. But the thing is like these safe parking lots will really help out all people that live in their vehicles, not just RVs. And I feel like they're helping out RVs just because they're the biggest vehicles and they're just trying to get them off the streets, right? Right. So they can clear out more space. Mm. But really, the people that need the most help in their vehicles are people living in smaller vehicles, like in vans and cars. Like, you really are camped up in a small space where where it's really hard to even, you know, do anything other than to sleep, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I I took us on a detour from the question I originally asked here, which which is Friends on Wheels was staying in the marina for a time. Um, I believe this was after the overnight parking ban happened, or correct me if I'm wrong. How how did this unfold? They've they've moved around a lot. First, we were were at the Berkeley Marina, and there was no such ordinance, you know? It was, like, like, free for us to park. You know, there's actually... You know, it was pretty lenient, and that's why a lot of vehicle dwellers would always go to the Berkeley Marina. Like, by the winter of 2017, uh, there was just, like, you know, like over 80 vehicles in a line. Wow. <laughs> all of us, yeah, all of us at the Marina Boulevard, and, and people would just use that parking lot as a way to come in and out, you know, just to park for the night. Some people would park there for the night. The big RBs would stay there. But, you know, it was just like a spot where people can, you know, uh, just know that it was safe to be there at night. Eventually, there was just too many of us, and that's when the Park and Waterfront Commission, they actually wrote a memo to the city council asking them to deal with this, right? And that's when everything started. You know, that's when they started to draft, you know, legislation in order to address the population. You know, at first, they just moved us. They just told us to go somewhere else in the city. 
But because we, we kept being politically active, you know, showing up to the city council meetings and asking for the needs that we needed, that's just when the city council started drafting these legislations because they just didn't want to, you know, I'm not trying to say no, they didn't want to address the problem, but they really didn't want to address everything, you know, like they're only addressing a small proportion of it. Um, they didn't and, want people parking in the marina anymore. Yeah, they didn't want, yeah. So basically what they did is just they just did everything they could to get people out of there. <laughs> Even now it's really hard to park there. Like only people that are, are live in cars or vans, you know, are allowed to stay there overnight because they can move in and out, you know. It's easier for them. Yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what happened once, were, were you ultimately thrown out? Yeah, so yeah. So ultimately, like, um, we were thrown out. We were back on the streets on Industrial Berkeley at first. Um, we were kind of wondering for a while because there was just so many of us. And for all, all of us to park together, it was kind of hard to find, you know, a specific intersection where we can actually all be. Yeah. And then we ended up here, you know, in, on 8th Street in Harrison. You know, it's not ideal because we're actually in the middle of a bus route. So the bus passes endlessly, you know, every day. Um, But, you know, we kind of just got used to it. (laughs) So what happens when someone gets ticketed? Because that's sort of a constant concern if you live in a vehicle and there are these overnight parking bans. I believe they exist in both Berkeley and San Francisco in different forms. What happens when you get a ticket and especially what happens if you can't pay it? I mean, when you get a ticket, they just start piling up. It's just like a, like a lot of people are not going to be able to pay right away. I mean, it's about $100. If you didn't have those $100 to pay your registration, you know, what makes you think you're going to have the money for the ticket? Yeah, so when they start piling up, it just becomes harder because then, you know, you kind of, it's like a red flag on you. They know that, you know, that you have all these fees accumulated. And a lot of the time, it's just what makes people, you know, what makes them take it to the toy yard. Then they get towed. And then that that just becomes a lot harder because then you have to pay registration, your towing fees, and all these things just to get out of your vehicle. And a lot of the times, yeah, it's just too much money and they lose it. Exactly. I mean, that's the next question I was going to ask. If you don't have the money, as you say, to pay the registration, then you probably won't have the money to pay the ticket. Then you definitely won't have the money to pay to get your car back once it gets towed. So, yeah. So then what? Then you're just completely without anything? A lot of my neighbors that have gotten their vehicles towed, you know, they'll have to either try to couch surf with other community members in their vehicles or they'll have to just pitch a tent. And a lot of the times it comes down to just, you know, having to get a tent because it's going to be a lot harder to uh, to get back on your feet again. Now you have to save for another vehicle. Instead of helping people, it just makes makes life a lot harder not to have one. I'm speaking with photojournalist Jessica Prado about her reporting series, Driving Home, Surviving the Housing Crisis. One thing that struck me about Berkeley is that members of the Friends on Wheels community did repairs at night, repairs on their vehicles. Can you tell us why and what effect that had on the community? Yeah. So basically a lot of the repairs happen at night because, you know, it's illegal to repair everything on the street during because it's public street. You know, and you're not supposed to be obstructing. It's only allowed during emergencies. Uh, and a lot of people just, you know, just trying to stay incognito. You know, they're they're not getting fined or, or their vehicles are not being towed. Because if you have your vehicles on jacks in the middle of the street, they're going to think that that's, you know, unoperable. Basically, just brings the, the, the tow truck to the block. And it has happened, you know. And, uh, they already took they took one of the vans that um, somebody was fixing up, you know. He had, this, he had dismantled the doors and, you know, he was going to paint it. But because it looked like such form of disrepair, they just thought it just didn't work. And actually, it was on Christmas Day when they took it. 
and it was pretty sad. He came back and there was no ban. It seems like a bit of a catch-22 because if you have to be moving your vehicle constantly in order to avoid getting tickets, in order to avoid getting your car towed or your vehicle towed, and it doesn't move because it's not in working order, but you can't fix it during the day because that's illegal, you sort of get stuck, no? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, people are definitely stuck in a cycle that you can't escape, you know? You can't repair your vehicle, you can't, you know, you can't move, but you have to keep moving. So it's like, I don't know, it's just pretty, it's just distressful to be in this in this situation when, you know, especially when your vehicle's in this repair. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that people resort to all kinds of different ways of moving their vehicles because they have to. I, I was very struck by Tante's story in San Francisco. Can you talk a little bit about how she moves her vehicle when it doesn't start? Yeah, so... So when it doesn't start, basically she either has to, you know, have somebody to pull her or have another RB just push her off the street, you know, because it's a heavy duty vehicle. It's it's heavy. Like we have tried pushing somebody's vehicle before. It takes a lot of manpower, you know, to push a recreational vehicle. So you, so know, you, you just definitely... push it with another RV. You basically ram it. Mm-hmm, yeah. So basically, yeah, you just ram it like that way. But sometimes wow. you don't have that option, you know, so all you have to use is manpower. <laughs> So, but I mean, it's very lucky that she has her partner to push her out of the street because, like I said, you know, the people that are, um, there's a lot of people that uh, their vehicle doesn't start and, you know, some of them on disability and for them to move their vehicle is going to be a big challenge. And a lot of those vehicles actually end up being towed because, you know, they didn't move. They didn't follow the 72 hour rule. Some of the other ways is like, um, you know, they'll just tie it to a pickup truck or to a little car. And even though it doesn't have the capacity to pull it, you know, they still use every every ounce of power that they can just to move the vehicle, you know. And just saying that, you know, and in these situations when they have to move their home or get towed, you know, it's pretty it's pretty stressful, you know, because this, this is your home. Like you're in the verge of losing your home and it's only just because, you know, you just can't get out of Dodge. So it's it's difficult. Yeah. I want to ask you more about Tante we just brought up because my understanding is that she for a long time was hoping to get into one of these safe parking spaces that we talked about but ultimately didn't can Mm -hmm. you explain why yeah Uh, so basically Tante had applied to be in the safe parking lot because you know she had found out that she was pregnant and she just wanted a more stable situation having to be in the Bayview she was just moving around constantly even though there's a lot more vehicles there you know there's also a lot more enforcement that comes over here you know and tells them that they have to move you know sometimes not so so much about the tickets that you find in the windshield but it's the constant police presence that they keep telling you that you can't be here or you know you can't be in this area so she got an opportunity why didn't she go uh, so she got the opportunity and didn't go because just the program's rules were very restrictive for her. Like basically she said, you know, she wanted to be able to have visitors, you know, be able to see family. And then she also uses a generator to power, you know, to power all her amenities inside her home. And that's something that she wasn't allowed to use either. So it's not like they're giving people also electricity. So how do they expect people to live their everyday lives, you know, if they can have their generator on? The safe parking yeah. places don't offer electricity no as far as i'm aware i think they only gave them an extension cord if they need to charge something but it's not like every vehicle has their own you know like their plug-in for you to have electricity there like no uh when you go to an rb park they have like a sewage connection and your electrical connection for each vehicle yeah it's not like that not each i hear it not every vehicle has their own individual amenities they just kind of share 
you know, everything. So I think electricity is just shared by an extension cord. <laughs> I don't know, like, I feel like there's more services that we can actually provide in the parking lot. And I think one thing that they need is just, you know, vehicle repairs. And that's something that's not being offered by any any city service. Well, actually, I want to talk more about electricity because you did speak with Greg, who we mentioned already, who's in San Francisco, who's living in not an RV, not a van, but a sedan, just a straight up car. How does he power his devices and go about his daily life? How does he cook? How does he do laundry? Yeah. Uh, So basically, he has a solar panel and he has two batteries, uh, two auxiliary batteries. And that's that's able to give you enough storage, you know, just to charge the basics charge your phone, you know, be able to turn on the TV or a DVD player so he can watch movies. Yeah, so, so you know, very basic devices that don't, you know, suck a lot of power. Because whenever, if you were to try to put any kitchen appliances, like like a hot plate or a micro microwave, like those devices, they just suck up too much power. So the only way that he's able to cook is with his, uh, with his little energy efficient pan that he likes, you know. It's called his new way pan. He told oh, me nice. about it. Yeah, he's really happy about it. Because one thing about cooking on the street is that if people see an open flame, you know, right away someone's going to be calling on you, right? Basically, the only way that he's able to find a place to cook or to do his chores is at the toy yard because people know him there. Nobody calls the cops on him when they see him doing his chores outside this his This is vehicle. a toy yard that he used to work at, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Larry's toy yard so basically because he's able to be there then nobody's calling on him you know because usually one thing that is very common is when you see someone that's on house doing their chores on the street like washing dishes or you know showering or you know doing their things a lot of people just you know call the cops (laughs) yeah and it just becomes harder to even do your chore if you had to deal with the police too what Uh, happens when the police show up I mean, they just tell them that they can't do those things here. I've seen like a lot of the times when, you know, my neighbors have open fire, uh, the fire to cook. Uh, the firefighters will just tell them that they have to turn it off. It, it's just the, their presence alone. You know what I mean? Like when they come, it just gives off this, this kind of aura that, you know, we're just up to no good. But really, I mean, people are just trying to do their chores. Yeah. You know? Speaking of tensions and, and difficult choices <laughs> and things you have to do, can you talk more about what it's like for people living with their children in vehicles. You have some amazing photos of kids in the Friends on Wheels community, and you write about the coordination that these families had to do with one another for childcare. We talked about Tante and how her considerations about living in a vehicle changed when she learned that she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. What did you hear from people that they were thinking about when it came to the topic of young kids? So I would say that a lot of families that are living in recreational vehicles, you know, they would rather not be in that recreational vehicle. I mean, it's a small space to raise a family. Like uh, a lot of them, they just felt like they just didn't have enough room for them to just have their own privacy. You know, kids need their privacy. <laughs> I mean, everybody is family members and you can be together with them, but everybody also needs their own space. And that's something that they couldn't achieve with the RV because, you know, it's just like one one room, one little studio apartment in in four wheels. <laughs> so I think that's one thing that was difficult for families is just, you know, trying to get their daily chores done when, you know, they're stepping on each other. <laughs> Everybody's in there. Especially for the family um, that I was reporting on, you know, um, there was like three siblings, the parents and grandma. And sometimes, you know, they had to 
use the second vehicle, the SUV, where they drove around and to do their chores. They had to use that in order uh, for the parents to sleep, you know, so they could have more more space in the recreational vehicle for their children. So, and I've seen a lot of that, you know, a lot of the parents having to sleep in their trucks or cars because, you know, they want to give their space to their children. A lot of these families really need something more than just a vehicle. I think like a vehicle is a temporary form of shelter, you know, so that they don't have to be living in tents or, you know, on the street. But they definitely need a better option of housing, you know. They just need more space. And there are considerations about where to park this RV too, right? I mean, you describe having sort of a, a, a circle where kids could play in between the RVs and people could keep an eye on them and how that changed over time and how parents were worried mm-hmm. about going back to curbside. Yeah. Why? How does that yeah. change their life? Um, I mean, living in the curbside is really hard, especially because every time you open your door, I mean, you don't know who's outside, <laughs> you know, and there's been times when I have opened my door and sometimes uh, almost swung on people because <laughs> they're just Ooh. walking down the sidewalk. But, you Yikes. know, I didn't know they were going to be there, <laughs> but it, it happens. So it's just difficult because some of the neighbors that are around here, you know, they don't want us here. We have been here for too long and, and for them, you know, we're... We have ruined their neighborhood, you know, we, and, and, you know, their perspective is valid, you know, like I get it. We have been here for two years now in the same intersection for a lot of people that, that has been far too long and the city should have done something. That's what the businesses around here want. They want this situation to be addressed. And so do we, you know, but I, I, we would like it to be addressed in a way where we can actually know what's going to happen, you know, to people. Uh, because the way that they started this is like, you know, if only 25 people can go into the parking lot, then what happens to the rest? And and just that, the fact that not everybody knows what's going to happen to them is just what's kind of nerve-wracking, <laughs> just the uncertainty. Well, Yessie, thank you so much for your work and for talking. Yeah, no, thank you, Laura. <laughs> that was photojournalist Jessica Prado. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. And real quick before you head out, we're still hoping to hear from you about what you think of this show and how we can do better. If you have suggestions, drop us a line by filling out our five-minute survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash civic listeners. Thank you so much.